results of that mistrust in the form of lies, divisions, and mistakes. We need to find a way to cooperate while realizing foreign policy can't be run by committee. And I believe there's now the growing sense that we can accomplish more by cooperating. And in the end, this may be the eventual blessing in disguise to come out of the Iran-Contra mess. How can he lie like there that? Are now 17 months left in this administration. How can he pull that shit? What shit? Now, where do we have reservations at? I mean, I'm not really hungry, but I'd like to have reservations someplace. How can you be so fucking, I don't know, cool about it? Some guys are just born cool, I guess. Bateman? What are you so fucking zany about? <laughs> I'm just a happy camper. <laughs> Rocking and a rolling. <laughs> oh, brother, look. He presents himself as this harmless old codger, but inside. But inside. But inside doesn't matter. Inside, yes, inside. Believe it or not, Bryce, we're actually listening to you. Come on, Bateman. What do you think? Whatever. This moronic idea was to order dry beers. I need a scotch. Judge Robert Bork. When I named him to the U.S. Court of Appeals, the American Bar Association. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil. All the mayhem I have caused, and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. Let me make just a very brief introduction because uh, just in case someone hearing doesn't know what we are talking about, but I mean, I guess everyone knows about it. I will just make a brief summary of the movie or of the book. Now, American Psycho is a novel published in 1991 by Brett Easton Ellis, an American writer. This novel is about a man called Patrick Bateman that works in downtown Manhattan as a financial broker. He's an expert in mergers and acquisitions, and he's technically a yuppie because the novel is set in the late 80s. We don't have exactly the years, but we can reconstruct more or less that Bateman is around 27 years old in the book, in the novel, and he was born in 1962. So we are in 1989, 1990, and this sort of years. And Bateman is a yuppie. Uh, the strange thing about Bateman, of course, is what makes the book relevant, different from other books focalizing on yuppies, etc is that Bateman has a double life, in a sense. During the day, or let's say, uh, when he's with uh, his colleagues, uh, he's just a normal yuppie, you know, having uh, um, 
lunches with his colleagues, uh, discussing uh, business, uh, women, and all sorts of things. But then his uh, deranged side emerges and he becomes uh, a de facto a serial killer. He murders everything and everyone that he encounters, from uh, small animals uh, to women, uh, fiancés, etc., etc., and colleagues. So that's how the character is represented to us. Now, the book, however, is uh, extremely violent. Everything Bateman does is, uh, first of all, narrated in first person, apart from a couple of parts in the book. I will come up to this later. And so everything is described by the point of view of Bateman. All the killings are described in an extremely accurate and very specific way. And when he talks about his killings, uh, you are reading a gore book, essentially, a very pulp and extremely splatter book. Now, previously I was re referring to this couple of parts in which Bateman talks uh, of himself with the third person, uh, singular. There are some parts of the book in which he does so. And uh, from these parts, we understand that Bateman has a series of psychological problems. That is the fact that he perceives sometimes himself not as truly himself, but as someone else. Um, I don't know if it's called like depersonification or something. Um, I mean, I think it's correlated with a lot of, let's say, um, psychological type or types of disturbs. I don't know if it's the right term to use, but nevertheless, this is the part of the character. Because of course, uh, when we are talking about Bateman, we are clearly talking about a character who is uh, in extremely psychological troubles, of course. His uh, superficial life, uh, being uh, the next door guy, so uh, apparently nice, uh, well-educated, uh, awesome person, is uh, just uh, a cover for his real life. The real Bateman is probably what emerges when he kills people. And in the book, it is immediate, and also in the movie, this distinction between what is superficial, so from how Bateman allows the other ones to perceive his person, and how he truly is, in an essence. And this is, of course, a type of... Uh, let's say, a comparison that we can draw with a lot of things. The book is essentially a critique of Reaganism, we may say, or let's say of the American way of life in the 80s. On the other side, there is, on one side, there is this idea that wealth and, uh, let's say, and well-being are spreading everywhere because economic growth is skyrocketing. On the other side, of course, if we go beyond the superficiality, the reality is actually cruel. In a, a, in a very economic uh, essence, uh, inequalities are skyrocketing at the same time. And the well-being connected to the yuppie culture is uh, irrelevant, is, uh, we may even say, propaganda to some extent. This is the superficiality of Reaganism, in an essence. In Bateman, we also see this superficiality in another way. Bateman generally, of course, when you read the book, uh, you cannot really guess the tone of voice Bateman has. But you sort of understand that his tone is dull, monotonic over the book, because uh, he is a man with no emotions. I will come up to this later, about the fact that he is a sort of robot, an automatic human being, not a real human being, with emotions and free will, in a sense. Um, 
this superficiality emerges from uh, the fact that his tone again is, uh, um, I would say, the same for the entire book, describing a lunch meeting, describing his outfit, or describing the killing of his ex-fiance, makes no difference. Also in the in the style of the prose. When Bateman describes his outfit or the outfit of his colleagues, he performs a very accurate and straightforward list of what they or he is wearing. And that's it. When uh, he kills someone, that's exactly the same. But you, you see that also in these points in which Bateman should be very in touch with humanity, as he used to say, he's not really in touch with humanity at the same time. He's still detached. No, I'm in, I'm in touch with humanity. He performs a series of monologues. The most, uh, one of the most important ones is the political one. Oh, who gives a rat's ass? Hey, that affects us. Oh, well, what about the massacres in Sri Lanka, honey? Doesn't that affect us too? I mean, do you know anything about Sri Lanka? How, like, the Sikhs are killing, like, tons of Israelis over there? Come on, Bryce. There are a lot more important problems than Sri Lanka to worry about. Like what? Well, we have to end apartheid for one and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism, and world hunger. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless, and oppose racial discrimination, and promote civil rights, while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern, and less materialism in young people. Patrick, <laughs> how thought-provoking. The inner, at, a, at a, a certain point, he emerges with a prepared, probably, because he's extremely, let's say, fast in delivering it, speech, uh, discussing, I mean, portraying essentially what we may say is the liberal stereotype, in a sense. Because superficially, uh, Bateman pretends to be you know, a person that cares about others in a very superficial way is all around the world thinks that, uh, I mean, everyone agrees with this kind of stuff. It's, I mean, it, it, it is difficult not to agree with this stuff. I mean, we all want this uh, set of things to happen in the world. We all want to live in a better world. The problem, of course, is that uh, what Bateman presents uh, essentially stops here. This is just a monologue in which he just wants to look cool um, on the face of his colleagues. The true Bateman reveals itself in his, in his own head, in his own thoughts. He is a deeply racist. He hates homeless people. In the book, the beginning of the book presents um, Bateman and his probably best friend, Price, that then in the movie was called Bryce, but uh, I mean, the surname doesn't change a lot. While Bateman is, of course, having some kind of hallucinations, seeing writings that do not exist, uh, Bryce is actually counting the number of homeless people they see from the taxi. And of course, he complains about the city. You know, he says that the city, uh, New York City, of course, is becoming a slum. There is a lot of not of poverty, because they do, he does not complain about poverty in essence. He complains about the fact that there are poor people around. You know, they should be ghetto. They should be put in a ghetto somewhere else. I mean, they should not appear. And this is, we may say, another way 
in which uh, Ellis actually presents this world. On one side, the rampant skyrocketing downtown of the Yappies, and then on the other side, the misery happening downtown with all these homeless people. Now, another interesting, I would say, point is also the reference to Trump within the book. That Donald Trump's car. God, Patrick, shut up. Because, okay, uh, I mean, this was probably not intended because Ellis was clearly not aware of, who, of what would have happened later. But Bateman, being a yuppie, is of course a follower, we may say, of Trump. For a very simple reason, because Trump at the time is the embodiment of the yuppie culture. And so um, he literally reads every article in which Donald appears, in which he's mentioned, and he reads every book published by Donald Trump. Of course, again, one may, let's say, draw a line and say, well, if Bateman, would, if Bateman is alive today, he will probably vote for Trump or something similar. And this is another fair point about Bateman and his, let's say, yuppie culture. Another thing that uh, um, Ellis demolishes, we may say, is uh, the American dream. We know that the American dream is the fact that if, even if you are poor, but you have some talent, no, you can emerge because there is a social mobility. You can eventually become rich and uh, enjoy a wonderful life. And technically, even if you watch uh, uh, a lot of movies about uh, the yuppie culture, all these movies are set on this type of propaganda. No? If you have talent, if you are talented, uh, you are going to emerge. Now, Ellis actually demolishes this kind of rhetoric. Because what happens in this book, we clearly see it, is that Bateman and his colleagues uh, do not come from emerging families. They come from emerged families. They come from old money families, which we know in the US is the closest thing we have to aristocracy, essentially. Since in the US there was no noble class historically, what we see is that the top bourgeoisie class behaves as aristocrats. No? And nowadays, we have a rediscovery also on TikTok of this old money aesthetics. This exactly has to do with this. We wanted to reinvent a noble class where the noble class, for historical reasons, was never present. This, this is exactly where Bateman comes from. All his colleagues come from wealthy families. They have all attended top-level colleges, top-level schools, etc., etc. And most of them are, are essentially benefiting from a rent. Bateman works in a company which is called Pierce and Pierce, who is, according to his girlfriend, Evelyn, de facto owned by the father of Bateman, who we never actually see in the book. He is probably dead anyway. And uh, of course, uh, one may say, okay, but if Bateman is enjoying this kind of rent, why he actually works? Well, there are two answers to this. One is that, uh, well, Bateman does not really work because es essentially all his work, all his job boils down to these lunch meetings in which they do not discuss absolutely nothing. In the, in the book, there is very little space for Bateman actually working in his office and discussing, uh, I don't know, derivatives, mergers and acquisitions, things happening in finance. This is very rare in the book because the what uh, Ellis wants us to communicate is that 
these people are doing bullshit jobs, not in the, in the way Graeber intends, simply jobs that do not produce anything and do not actually need these people to do anything at all. On the other side, we may say, well, Bateman works even though he hates his job for a very simple reason. This is also said very clearly in the movie because he has to fit in. Patrick, we should do it. Do what? Get married, have a wedding. No, I can't take the time off work. Your father practically owns the company. You can do anything you like, silly. I don't want to talk about it. I hate that job anyway. I see why you just don't quit. Because I want to fit in. So as a yuppie, he has to participate in all the activities, uh, happenings, uh, um, whatever that are part of his job. Most of the time in the book, we have references to the so-called Fisher account. Paul Allen's on the other side of the room over there. Oh, who's he with? I'm Weasel from Kicker Peabody. They don't have a good bathroom to do coke in. Are you sure that's Paul Allen over there? Yes, McDougas. I am. He's handling the Fisher account. Lucky bastard. We don't know what it is inside this account. We simply know that Paul Allen, which is, uh, is called Paul Owen in the book, and represents a sort of rival, metaphorically, of Bateman, is actually handling. So he's managing this Fisher account. Bateman is obsessed with this Fisher account, probably for a very simple reason, simply because it is perceived as relevant. Perhaps it is a very important account for the company, and probably the fact that it has been given uh, to Paul Allen or Owen, call it as you wish, signifies the fact that Paul Allen, again, or Owen, call it as you wish, is perceived as significant in the company. Even though, again, we can see this in the famous business card scene. New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. All Bateman colleagues have this same position. They are all vice directors. And that's it. Another point that we can draw, of course, on the politics of Bateman, I mean, I have, already, I have already clarified it, is that, okay, superficially, he is well-behaving because he knows, even though he has learned it in a very automatic way, what is decent and what is not. Deep down, we know, of course, he is racist, homophobic, and all of the following. Now, um, I was saying before that Bateman essentially behaves as a robot. Now, why this happens? Well, this happens because essentially Bateman has always lived in an, in an hyper-capitalistic, uh, let's say, environment, a type of society, because essentially all of his life has been driven by the money and the need to make it. Well, the need, not the physical need to make it, to survive, but simply the need to increase capital exponential. So, uh, I think this is a quote coming from Baudrillard or some French philosopher, some postmodernist French philosopher. The idea is that if you are, uh, if, if you are used to live 
uh, within objects. So if you are raised by objects, exactly like, I don't know, uh, it has happened historically of human beings raised by animals. The same happens with Bateman, but through objects. Bateman has been raised through objects, not through, let's say, uh, emotions or values, etc., but by strictly objects. Now, Bateman only reasons in terms of objects because there is no place for emotions in his mind, apart from adrenaline sometimes. And he is himself an object. I think that this episode of depersonalization are exactly coherent with the fact that he perceives himself as an object. And of course, once you perceive yourself as an object, you can become the object also from a linguistic point of view. So on the other side of the subject, if you, you can become an object also ontologically, so something physical uh, with no life inside, but also again, semantically. So as something opposed to the subject. As a person, we are subjects, essentially. Bateman thinks that he is an object. And this is, a, again, extremely problematic because it means that you have a person roaming around in New York with uh, no type of, uh, not only of free will, but simply of uh, no way of judging things, essentially. This is also reflected by uh, Bateman's judgments on uh, popular culture. When Bateman talks about music, now he pretends to be a music expert. You like Huey Lewis in the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Alberstram. Yes, Alan? Why are there copies of the style section all over the place? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Helen. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this for their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! But if you read them in the book, in the book, uh, there are three chapters dedicated to Whitney Houston, Huey Lewis and the News, and the Genesis. In these chapters, if you read them carefully, but not even extremely carefully, I mean, you can, you can find these mistakes very easily. There are mistakes, but terrible mistakes. For example, when Bateman talks about Genesis, he frequently confuses one member for another and their respective roles. Tony Banks goes from being a keyboard player to being the bass player, and the opposite for Michael Rutherford, which of course makes no sense. A real Genesis fan would never make that mistake. And also there are other parts of the book in which, for example, he, he is asked what he thinks is the, I think, the saddest song ever by a street interviewer. 
And he answers, you can't always get what you want, which is a song by the Rolling Stones, but he says that this song is made by the Beatles, which doesn't make any sense. Also, if you consider the fact that at the time, so in the late, in the late 60s, early, very early 70s, Beatles and Rolling Stones were actually terribly opposing each other, not only in terms of the music genre they play, but also in terms of their attitudes. The Beatles in 1968, because I think it's contained in the White Album, they write a song called Revolution, which should be, a, let's say, a protest song, which, which does not really encourage any protest. No? It simply says, oh, as soon as you don't smash anything and you don't disturb too much, we stand with your uh, revendications. Let's I mean, you, we can make a parallel with uh, uh, Black Lives Matter in a sense. No? During uh, the first riots, there was exactly the case of people saying, oh, I support anti-racism, but when they started to destroy stuff, whatever stuff is, the most irrelevant one, probably, I'm not anymore with them. Well, the Beatles had already expressed more or less this concept in 1968. And I mean, if you were reactionary in 1968, uh, it's a very big trouble. Well, I'm, I'm interested to talk about the monologue that you mentioned a little bit earlier, because I have the full quotation of it from the book, and I find it very interesting. The movie version is a little bit different, as you mentioned. He says, the first line that he says is, uh, well, we have to end apartheid for one. So that's kind of like his, his beginning line. And then he goes on later in the book and says, and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism and world hunger, ensure a strong national defense, prevent the spread of communism in Central America, work for a Middle East peace settlement, prevent U.S. military involvement overseas. We have to ensure that America is a respected world power. There, there's some very interesting lines sort of towards the end where he talks about making sure America is the leader in new technology, blah, blah, blah. So always kind of about American exceptionalism. But as for his, like, his ending paragraph, he says, for our social needs, we need to, you know, maintain women's freedom. And he even says protect the right to life while maintaining women's freedom. So he's completely confused about what exactly he's advocating for. He mentions we need to control the influx of illegal immigrants. But then the most, probably the most interesting line is at the end where he says, we have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Yes. And most importantly, promote general social concern and less materialism in young people. I just, I mean, there's a lot there, and, and this is probably, as you mentioned earlier, mentioning this monologue, it's one of the most interesting parts of the book and even in the film, because you get this impression of Bateman, like, as you mentioned, he has this sort of memorized script of talking points like a, a sort of politician, but what's, what's sort of revealing with it is his complete lack of sincerity, he's completely disingenuous, he's memorized them as sort of like a as you said, with, with everything he says, it's kind of like a droning, it's almost like white noise, like he just is talking to talk and say things. Yes. A, a typical thing happening in the book, uh, because uh, there are other parts of the book, for example, in when, they, when they talk about uh, pop culture, mm. that uh, what they say reduces to barely notionism. They simply read somewhere that like uh, Sebastopoli, was the capital of Arcadia destroyed in, 20, in, 30, in, sorry, in 330 be, uh, before the birth of Christ, they repeat it. It doesn't matter the context. 
uh, they yeah. learn, they, I mean, I wouldn't even call this learning. They simply memorize stuff with no critical thought because they have no critical thought in general to apply because exactly they are machines. They are instruments of whatever type of system we, we I mean, we like to think of the American system, the capitalist system, the financial system, whatever that is. The fact that they are exactly machines then implies exactly the fact that they cannot have some critical thought. Also, the monologue, also the premise is interesting. So what happens before? Because on one side, you have these artists, which are very weird artists. Also in the, uh, in the movie, they are portrayed like, uh, um, I don't know, I remember that Stash looks like Robert Smith of the Cure during the 80s period. Now he's completely dressed in black with uh, this uh, weird uh, long and black hair going in every direction, like, again, Robert Smith by the Cure. And then you have the other girl, Vanden, that looks more like a sort of punk rocker, a new wave punk rocker, uh, sort of. And you also see that they are completely detached from this. I mean, this may be, I don't know, a critique that Ellis makes to his own colleagues. So we are artists, we write books, we make statues, we make pieces of art, whatever we do, we should have some political and critical consciousness that clearly these two artists do not display. So they are a negative representation of what artists and let's say intellectuals should represent. On the other side, you have Bryce, Bryce or Price, again, let's call it Price because I like the play on words, of course, is a completely stubborn character. He just enters into the conversation, just throwing some random type of information. The, uh, the character of Price is particular also because in the book, as well as in the movie, at a certain point disappears. Because we understand that probably because of his diet based on steroids and cocaine, at a certain point, uh, he goes crazy. In the book, at a certain point, he runs away at a party, at tunnels, so the, the discotheque we also see in the movie. While in the movie, they film the similar scene but I think they cut it in the last, uh, I mean, in the last, um, the last montage, let's say. So we do not actually see it. And uh, I think it's uh, not random the fact that Bateman says that Price is uh, the most interesting person he knows. Because it, it is true that within his set of colleagues, he is indeed the most interesting. Because at a certain point, anyway, he displayed some feature of leaving the environment. And this is something that he eventually does for a big portion of the book or of the movie. In the end, anyway, after probably going to some rehab clinic, I don't know, he reappears drinking sparkling water instead of, I don't know, any kind of cocktail drink with alcohol that you can think about. And that's price, again completely stubborn character. And then Bateman appears because of course, whenever this set of yappies start to talk, uh, there is a competition in finishing the speech of the previous one. There is also a chapter in which they discuss about brands of mineral water. They, um, in, in, this, uh, in that dialogue, uh, um, we have Courtney, they are in a limousine. 
there is Courtney, who is the, let's say, secret lover of Bateman. We have Bateman and the colleague of Bateman. The colleague of Bateman, which I don't remember if it's Van Patten or uh, McDermott, one of the two, starts to list a series of brands. Of course, it's a, a, I mean, a list with some names missing. And Bateman promptly fills the list by saying, oh, you forgot this and this and this. I mean, we can sort of understand that Bateman is happy to, to fulfill the list because, I mean, he has been able to overthrow, let's say, the other yuppie by being the leader of the dialogue. And this is the same that happens now in this dialogue with Price. Um, Bateman delivers this speech uniquely because he wants to overcome Price. And he does this by following, a, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a particular operation of rhetoric. Um, I mean, it, it's very similar to this kind of operation. A very, for example, when you are debating with someone and you want to kill his thesis, what you just want is that you present, like an avalanche, a series of counter-arguments which do not need at all to be all, uh, let's say, serious and well-made. You just need perhaps one to be well-made. The other ones can be whatever you want. The avalanche, the rhetoric avalanche that you are producing will overflow clearly your opponent. This is the same thing that Bateman does. Also because in this speech, uh, which uh, truly coherent with, let's say, the liberalism we are all used to nowadays, is saying, as you were pointed out, one thing and it's opposite. Apart from very uh, specific things like, okay, we need to stop communism. I mean, this is clearly, of course, something on which you don't have a, a centrist position. You are Bateman and these, uh, let's say, colleagues are clearly against the communism. So, on, on a series of other, let's say, more delicate, more debatable to some extent issues, they clearly have a centrist approach. You know, you were saying women's rights. We are for women's rights, so we are more left-wing, in a sense, because we are more, let's say, uh, pro-choice, you was to say. But on the other side, we are also pro-life. Pro so, I mean, okay, what is your position? No, it's like with... Uh, um, Pete Buttigieg, no? you remember the fake side about Pete Buttigieg saying, what do you think about climate change? We think what you think about climate change. This is exactly what Bateman does. He tries to accommodate everyone in his speech. Again, apart from very particular reactionary elements of this speech, if you are not, let's say, politically trained, you may say, ah, okay, yes, I agree with you because it is a very generic speech that is able to cover everything, every, let's say, moderate, normal, superficial kind of position. Also because, again, apart from very specific cases, it does not, Bateman does not take position in everything. The case for women, as an example, the case for immigrants, in a sense, because, okay, we need to provide food and shelter, to the homeless and help poor people in general, so of course also migrants, but at the same time, we need to stop them to come into our country. Again, of course, I mean, this is evident. What Ellis also tries to criticize is that these people are basically not aware of the times they are living in, they are living in, in a sense. 
Bateman sometimes has some, uh, let's say, sparks of lucidity because sometimes he says, but perhaps he intends this in a reactionary way, that uh, society is collapsing, which, okay, we can agree with this. It, uh, it depends on which sense you intend it. If you say that it is collapsing because uh, the economic system is collapsing and it's badly driven, okay, we can agree. If you are saying that it is collapsing because the traditional moral values, the mos maiorum, we, we, those who study the old Latin language used to say, the mos maiorum is declining, well, okay, that's a reactionary approach. You are simply saying that the morality of older generations and the morality of the Ku Klux Klan, I don't know, was better than nowadays morality. This is, a, this is probably what Bateman actually intends, of course not the, the first example, yeah. the second one. Mm. Anyway, he has some sparks of lucidity in which he says like that, the, for example, a quote that I always remember, and I generally reproduce it sometimes, is that these times are not for the innocent, which uh, you can interpret in several different ways. Probably the way in which Bateman interprets it is that uh, these are times of survival in a sense, so we need to behave like animals fighting against each other. And of course, innocence will never be able to prevaricate on others. If we want, this is the predatory morality of capitalism, of Reaganism. If we rely on individualism and we think that all the disgraces that we uh, suffer all come from our actions, well, it is also true the opposite. Every success that we see exactly comes from our actions. But success in capitalism means uh, subjugating other people, in essence. So we cannot win if we are innocent. We need to you know, make our hands dirty with blood if we want to have success. This is something that Bateman says, even though Bateman has never done such a thing, because as we know, Bateman never had to fight for, it, for his position because he was already born in an high level position. He does not have to prove anything to anyone. He's essentially living like a, a parasite, would we say, because he's enjoying a rent that he does not merit and simply he benefits from it in a very neutral way. And I want to just go back to what you mentioned about Pete Buttigieg and the website, because I found that, that quite interesting. So as such quotes, such great quotes uh, as America is a country, a country that we live in, unless you live somewhere else, or uh, hello, teens, I am Mayor Pete, and I'm asking for your support in my bid for the Democratic nomination. As a teenager, you are likely between the ages of 13 and 19. And that is great. That is what America is all about, being an age. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, his policies like in the US, some have health care while others do not. Some believe health care should be public while others believe it should be private. That is their opinion. And opinions are one of the many things that we are allowed to have. Or as you mentioned, climate change. Climate change is a hotly debated issue, both in person and online. What do you think about climate change? Because that is what we think too. And then the only one that actually has something serious is at the bottom, it's called the price of bread. And it says the price of bread should be determined via joint decision by several large corporations. So you see exactly as you're referencing this kind of pseudo woke sort of, I listen to the youth and I care about your opinion and I'm 
you know, progressive on some things, but then the actual sort of thing that matters being the, the price of bread. And then they actually link to Buttigieg at McKinsey, which McKinsey is sort of a very similar corporation to the one that Bateman works for doing this kind of vague consulting, no, no clue what you actually do. Yeah, yeah, it's PowerPoint consultancy. There is a reference on the fact that probably, I I think that the price of bread thing was exactly a reference to McKinsey because I think that some years ago, basically bread producers, I think in Canada, asked for consultancy to McKinsey because they wanted to increase profits. The answer from McKinsey was more or less increase prices. <laughs> Agree to increase yep. prices, basically make a cartel or sort of cartel concertation, call it as you wish, and then increase the price. You achieve, or let's say you come closer to the monopolist, as you would say in the economy, to the monopolist environment, which is the one in which the profits are as high as possible. And okay, that's the consultancy. First year economic student, could have said the same. Exactly. Of course, yeah. the problem is that this is illegal to do. <laughs> if you make exactly. a cartel or concertation, I mean, I know I'm not an expert on, uh, uh, let's say, Canadian antitrust law, but <laughs> generally cartels are illegal as far, yeah. as, I'm, as far as I know about it. Uh, I mean, it's the, right. the form of anti-competitive behavior. So. Right. But, but what's interesting with this kind of comparison to like Pete Buttigieg and Bateman is that on the face value of it, they're two very different people. And Buttigieg is meant to be sort of a more progressive guy. You know, he cares about blah, blah, blah. And, and Bateman is a terrible person. But what I think you're pointing out is that in their sort of public conversations or public face that they present to the world, they're more or less the same person. And on that interesting note, I'd like to point out as well is that I remember stuff about Buttigieg when he was running for president, not to make it too much about him, but he's a, a good example where he would have interviews and he would be doing this thing of, you know, I I care about the youth and I care about the future and and doing the politician thing. And I remember one where he's standing in front of a a map behind him of the mineral resources of Afghanistan, just on his wall. And he has it presented there. He was deployed there doing God knows what, something awful. You know, the book never presents anything of Bateman like that as a open imperialist, but I want to point out another quote that I found very interesting and and to show kind of the American exceptionalist and kind of manner in which this neoliberal, you know, droning white noise presents like foreign policy issues as he as he says it or issues about imperialism, because I, I have this quote at the beginning where he says, and I think it's much later in the book, but he's talking about uh, Lewis Carruthers. So because there is a, everything starts with the famous scene in which Bateman tries to kill uh, Carruthers in some public bathrooms in a, yeah, in a club right. by strangling him. And I just want to read it and read it as it's presented exactly in the book because it's, it's fascinating. But he says, would I ruin things by strangling Lewis? If I married Evelyn, would she make me buy her LaCroix gowns until we finalized our divorce? Have the South African colonial forces and the Soviet-backed black guerrillas found peace yet in Namibia? 
Or would the world be a safer, kinder place if Lewis was hacked to bits? My world might, so why not? There really is no other hand. It's really even too late to be asking these questions since now I'm in the men's room, staring at myself in the mirror, tan and haircut perfect, checking out my teeth, which are completely straight and white and gleaming, winking at my reflection I breathe in, sliding on a pair of leather Armani gloves, and then I make my way toward the stall Lewis occupies. And then he just, you know, continues to describe other weird things. He talks about whistling something from Les Miserables. So he's kind of like, and as you mentioned, it's funny to see all this cluster of noise and, and vague and, and, and it almost becomes a sort of stream of consciousness, especially when he's talking about, yeah, exactly. I'm walking into the room and checking myself out and he's describing his narcissism in, in incredible detail. But what I, I found incredibly interesting is the reference out of completely nowhere to the you know situation in South Africa and Namibia, the war in Angola. So you get this this reference to, as you mentioned at the beginning, we know we're in the 80s somewhere. So we're right at the end of the Cold War when the war in Angola and uh, apartheid are coming to an end. We get this very strange reference to what at the moment is sort of one of the biggest geopolitical incidents in the world. And, and it's treated as just as important as the question before it, which is whether his fiance, he should buy her a LaCroix gown if we finalize our divorce. There's absolutely no significance in his mind. It's just like a random thing. Interestingly, it shows that he sort of follows the news or he knows about world affairs, but in a completely disinterested manner, um, but also knows, you know, he, he wants them to, he wants the Soviets to leave out of Namibia. So as you mentioned before, he's anti-communist. He supports the American position. Obviously, there's a reference later on in the book where he talks about his pro-apartheid position that he wants to convince someone about. I don't know if you know that reference as well, but he, he references apartheid quite frequently. And it, it's fascinating for me to see because it's completely in the noise of everything else. So there's no significance to this terrible crime that's occurring while he's talking about this. And it, it's just the sort of geopolitical aesthetic as uh, Frederick Jameson talks about. It's just in the background, completely detached from anything else. Very reflective of the American point of view, like this conflict that America has a direct involvement in is supporting apartheid is completely not interesting to me. And I'm, I'm more interested whether I should strangle this guy to death. Uh, of course, and then he talks about his Armani gloves, which are the commodity, of course, is, is quite important for him rather than any tangible meaning of anything. Yeah, yes, of course. I mean, international relations here are mentioned sometimes, but they completely belong to the background. Probably Bateman has some notions of them because perhaps he reads some popular newspapers just because, you know, everyone reads them. As an example, uh, there is a reference to the New York Post. I mean, the entire book, we may say, is a reference to the New York Post because the titles, which are sometimes very uh, weird, because one of them is like killed a, a child at the park or something like that, uh, strangled a dog. Uh, they are all, uh, let's say, type of sensationalistic uh, titles that could... Uh, perfectly fit the narrative of this, uh, again, local newspaper, again, the New York Post, which is in the middle in between from being like, a, I don't know, a gossip magazine and being a serious newspaper. 
for example, sometimes Bateman references uh, um, quotes, articles from this uh, newspaper or from similar ones of things like people witnessing rats with wings, which sounds like uh, all the metropolitan legends like crocodiles living in the sewing system, you know, all this kind of, uh, um, again, completely deranged thing, very close to the, I don't even know whether to call it paranormal or not. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's more like a voice spreading and the more it spreads, the more it becomes sensational because it grows in magnitude, you know. You start, for example, with, uh, um, I don't know, a guy beating an old woman and you end up with a mass shooting you know, by with people repeating this thing and every time adding new particulars. And again, you captured it really well. There is this dimension of noise. We may say on one side, because uh, probably, I don't know if Ellis was really aware of this, but anyway, we are entering, I mean, at the time of the book, we are entering uh, the society in which we are nowadays, which is information-led in the sense that uh, uh, while before information was scarce because the means of communications were not as fast as we see them nowadays, now the problem is the opposite. We receive too much information and so we have to filter it, which basically means what, uh, deciding what we read and what we don't. And in what we read, we choose what we just learn superficially. We, want ju we just read the title or if we want to learn it deeper, well, we spend the time on it. Of course, Bateman, we may say, is an anti-literum example of this in the sense that his solution is superficiality in every context. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Even if he, in his job, probably he's superficial also because I mean, he does not really have to work in a sense. But everything that falls on him is just removed straight away. You know, it's like being hit by a wave. Okay, the wave hits you, but then water disper is dispersed in a sense, it is dispersed, sorry. That's exactly the same with information on Bateman. Exactly, he's a, he, he's a robot in the sense that he processes this kind of information at the level he's required to do so, very superficial. Anything else is irrelevant. And also, yes, I mean, the passage that you quote is a really good one. Also, because again, you can also appreciate this fact of the stream of consciousness that you were mentioning before. This is just a stream of consciousness made with questions because they are clearly questions jumping from one dimension to another. First talking about Lewis, then uh, talking about an eventual marriage with Evelyn, then moving to some geopolitical issue, then moving back to Lewis. It's a complete mess. Some parts of the book are even worse than this in the sense of uh, being easy to follow. Uh, they resemble more the Ulysses Joyce, uh, so, sorry, Joyce's Ulysses, uh, because in some points uh, you have uh, punctuation disappearing. So you just have uh, what really is a stream of consciousness, just words, uh, let's say, uh, to have a metaphor, puked on a piece of paper. Sometimes also the, the semantic, let's say, way in which a phrase should be organized, so subject, verb, and object gets completely removed. I mean, it doesn't matter. There are some passages in the book 
perspective, one, if I remember correctly, is like in the last pages of the book, so in the last chapter, in which Bateman is surrounded by this dialogue between his colleagues, which is eventually becoming not really a stream of consciousness, but just some, again, noise presented as a stream of consciousness, so no punctuation. You don't understand anymore who is saying something, basically, because this words, these dialogues just flow in the space. Uh, I mean, it is as if uh, the image that I have uh, in my head, uh, apart from the movie that portrays it in a nice way, is like imaginating that Bateman is at the center of a room, these people talking, and Bateman starts to turn around itself faster and faster. And at a certain point, he's not anymore able to distinguish uh, faces, images, shapes, whatever, because of course, uh, when you start to roll extremely fast, I mean, you cannot see anything clear. And the last word of the book, the last, sorry, the last phrase, which is also mentioned in the movie, remains, there is no exit. So this, sorry, no, there is no exit. This is not an exit. So Bateman cannot leave in any way this word, and also the the catharsis, let's say, mentioned in the book, you know, is not even able to convince his lawyer that he's guilty of committing crimes. Face it, the Japanese will own most of this country by the end of the 90s. <laughs> Shut up, Carnes. They will not. So, uh, Harold, did you get my message? Jesus, yes, that was hilarious. That was you, wasn't it? Yeah, naturally. Bateman killing Alan and the escort girls. That's fabulous. That's rich. What exactly do you mean? The message you left. By the way, Davis, how's Cynthia? You're still seeing her, right? Wait, Harold. What do you mean? Oh, excuse me, nothing. It's good to see you. Is that Edward Towers? Come on, wait. Uh, Davis. I'm not one to badmouth anyone. Your joke was amusing, but come on, man. You had one fatal flaw. Bateman is such a dork. Such a boring, spineless lightweight. Now, if you said Bryce or McDermott. Otherwise, it was amusing. Now, if you'll excuse me, I really must be going. <laughs> Wait. Um, stop. I did it, Garth. I killed him. I'm Patrick Bateman. The whole message I left on your machine was true. Excuse me. I really must be going now. No, listen. Don't you know who I am? I'm not Davis. I'm Patrick Bateman. We, we talk on the phone all the time. Don't you recognize me? You're my lawyer. Now, Carnes. Listen, listen very, very carefully. I killed Paul Allen. And I liked it. I can't make myself any clearer. But that's simply not possible. And I don't find this funny anymore. It never was supposed to be. Why isn't it possible? It's just not. Why not, you stupid bastard? Because I had dinner with Paul Allen twice in London, just 10 days ago. No, you didn't. Now, if you'll excuse me. He's forced in this 
endless repetition, we may say. Even going deranged publicly in front of his lawyer does not repay him. Again, there is no punishment for, for him. He's a sort of stuck in a limbo. He can only continue because if he does not continue, well, then, of course, uh, he feels, uh, I don't know, weird, sick, whatever. He has, uh, um, he's uh, thirsty for blood, in a sense. I have all the characteristics of a human being. Flesh, blood, skin, hair. But not a single clear, identifiable emotion, except for greed and disgust. Something horrible is happening inside of me and I don't know why. My nightly bloodlust has overflowed into my days. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. And so he cannot leave this world. He can only repeat more frequently the violent actions that he does, but with no type of horizon. There will never be a stopping point. I mean, he will never be sent to jail. Not even publicly admitting it was sufficient. So what he has to do? There is no exit, essentially. And I, I want to talk a bit about sort of a section, and, and I referenced it a little bit earlier with kind of this, I, I'm interested in the kind of banality of violence that the book describes and, and sort of how you can make very violent, very, and, and particularly on the note of imperialism, sort of when the international lens is applied to that, his level of violence becomes very much reflective of American aggression. So I referenced earlier the quote where he talks about his sort of pro-apartheid views. And it's actually in the same part where he's at dinner with Gene at Arcadia. As you mentioned, you were discussing his monologue that he says about Arcadia, blah, blah, blah. So he's, he begins by saying that uh, they're drinking, they're eating creme brulee, decaffeinated espresso, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, sitting across from Jean right now in the darkness of Arcadia, it's very easy to believe that she would swallow any kind of misinformation I push her away. The crush she has on me rendering her powerless, and I find this lack of defense oddly unerotic. I could even explain my pro-apartheid stance and have refined reasons why she too should share them and invest large sums of money in racist corporations. And then he cuts that off, there's a dash, and he launches into this monologue. Arcadia was an ancient region in Peloponnesus, Greece, which was founded, well, you know, as you mentioned before, completely misinforming her and, and she's just sort of nodding and agreeing. He has this, this interesting capacity to completely misinform people and with, and, and with respect to the book and the movie as well. So with, with the movie, of course, Bateman is portrayed by Christian Bale and there's the sort of underlying theme about how he is very compelling to women and very and Jean has sort of a an attraction to him and you know he's he's able to have that dimension of himself where he uses his his sort of fine you know physique and whatnot to totally mislead and murder people and in this case he's literally talking about I'm going to tell you to believe this thing and you just have to believe it because I'm so compelling and sort of hypnotic to you um, and I find that quite interesting with respect to in the movie and, and in other instances when he just, you know, is able to murder people and, and cause extreme chaos because of his sort of compellingness, that he's, he's an attractive figure. And I wanted to relate that to the re almost the reason we're even talking about American Psycho now, 
because it's sort of having this revival in a way like people have suddenly become interested in in the book and in the movie again i think and i wonder your opinion on this but i think for very similar reasons to what is said in this paragraph about his kind of attractiveness and his ability to misinform people and there seems to be a, a compulsion towards his you know him as the sigma male and that whole sort of thing that bateman is a an appealing character and he to some people has become a bit of an influence but at the same time we read stuff like this in the book and you you understand the capacity for him to be extremely evil and extremely malevolent it's very reflective of you were referencing the american dream earlier and it's a similar sort of thing the attractiveness of american capitalism and the havoc that it wreaks domestically but especially overseas through imperialism is sort of neglected and it becomes more about well on face value it's a very attractive sort of thing and the, the last part i wanted to mention was when he discusses uh his interactions with taxi drivers and that because i found that quite interesting as well with respect to what you're saying about his endless repetition of violence he frequently talks about sort of murdering taxi drivers who are who are immigrants or who are from a foreign background for example he has this interaction with the taxi driver abdullah he mentions having killed someone who was armenian and he doesn't even remember you know who they were what their name was or why he killed them but i find that very reflective of this kind of the the violence of american policy overseas of sort of destructiveness and without a real concern we don't even know the difference between afghanistan and iraq we don't even care really because it's all the same thing to americans so it becomes more about satisfying the sort of bloodlust as you mentioned and the bloodlust factor is very much uh, a parallel between bateman as a character and the way america sort of operates in the world yes of course i mean if you support the bloodlust you need to be superficial enough to do it in a sense and uh, yes, there are several occasions in which, uh, let's say, I wouldn't, I don't want to make a, a general and too ambiguous speech, but let's say the American people sometimes behave sufficiently superficial, uh, sufficiently superficial. For example, I remember that in 2020, when the general Soleimani in Iran was killed, a survey was made asking Americans, so, US citizens specifically to point out where Iran Iran was on the map and some people pointed Sicily which I mean okay it's a, it's in the Mediterranean but it's uh, I would say more than a couple thousand kilometers distant from Iran I mean Sicily is not even Middle East I may confuse Iran with Iraq perhaps because of the last letter but I mean Iran with Sicily it's very difficult. So, yeah, essentially, this is a problem. We may even say that at the end of the day, the final heritage, the final inheritance, sorry, of Reaganism is a, exactly this superficiality in a very simple way. Because if we start to um, murder people around the world, we can. Uh, let's say, manipulate things, uh, not by not mentioning it, because sometimes we even mention it, but simply by turning them simply into numbers uh, or simply by trying to justify from several points of view what uh, 
uh, we are doing. We know that what we are doing is wrong in an essence because we all have some sense of morality, but we have learned how to push it down. I mean, I remember that some months ago, I, I had a debate on the Ukrainian conflict, okay? And uh, one of the uh, people I had this dialogue with, not directly, but uh, I was part of an audience, uh, was basically someone that had worked in the NATO organization, okay? Now, at a certain point, at the, at the end of the debate, questions from the audience arised. One of the questions was simply, uh, if we consider the fact that the NATO was created um, to simply, let's say, stop the Soviet Union, to be, let's say, to counterbalance the Warsaw Pact or whatever you want, why NATO was not disbanded when the Warsaw Pact and, and, Pact and then the Soviet Union collapsed? The answer uh, coming from, again, this person was simply, well, because there was stuff to do. Because, of course, uh, when the Soviet Union fell, there was, uh, uh, I mean, there were already turmoils in the Gulf region, and then we had the terrorism, then we had the 9-11. But, I mean, if we reason on this way, first of all, we are justifying the terrible stuff, but also we are giving a never-ending justification to the existence of associations that have always done terrible things for a very simple reason, because the world is large, and there will be always something in the world that we should take care of. And if there is nothing, which is very rare, but may happen, well, we create it. I mean, at the end of the day, we may even say the terrorism that we discuss since 9-11 was created with the war in Afghanistan, more or less. No? Reagan used to say that the Mujahideen were like the US founding fathers, and we see now what these Mujahideen are doing. They, they became Taliban with weapons purchased by the US. And now in Afghanistan, they have their own, uh, yes, state, I think we can call it. They have their own state. We don't know what happens there. We just know, of course, that the most barbarian things happen. Um, if they were happening before, they were happening on behalf of us, but uh, it was okay. Probably there was a reason to do this. Now, not anymore, because, of course, the Taliban's being Middle Easterns are considered as barbarians. So they are inferior human beings. We don't have moved very far from the Greek notion of a barbarian. No? In, in the ancient Greece, everyone that is not Greek is a barbarian. Barbarian is the one that does not speak Greece. Someone speculates, I don't know if it's... Uh, true or not, that barbarian historically comes from the fact that people speaking languages different from the Greek one were perceived as simply repeating bar, bar, bar. So it's like an onomatopoeia, if we want. We, we don't have moved very far from this notion. We simply enlarged it. If you come from the West, so if you are, let's say, white and possibly male, then, uh, okay, we can reason on it. And we have seen it in Europe nowadays with the migrant crisis produced by Ukraine. Of course, the war in Ukraine has produced a massive amount of refugees, which have been welcomed, let's say, to put into quotes, in Europe for a couple of reasons, because they are white, 
and because they are Christians, uh, the, our Polish brothers have been very happy in welcoming them because they are essentially very similar. Uh, when it was the time to welcome Muslims or let's say even Catholic people, but coming from Africa or Middle East, so people who, well then at this point, Poland of course refused. Poland, which is basically uh, nowadays a theocracy ruled by the spirit of John Paul II essentially, because it's a country basically stuck in the memory of this man. Of Papa of Pope Voitila, which I mean was, uh, I mean if not the the worst recent pope, uh, I mean it was not the worst because after him we had Benedict the sixteenth, yeah. who was even worse. So, but in terms of like political, yeah, Paul, John Paul II was probably one of the yeah, worst. John Paul II was uh, yeah. particularly tough. I mean, the point was essentially yes, hypocrisy and superficiality. The main inheritance of Reaganism is uh, superficiality. And now that I mentioned mindset, I remember what you were saying about the Sigma component. Of course, nowadays, uh, there is a fascination for Bateman, which is uh, superficial as much as you want, and even ironic, of course, uh, because, uh, okay, Bateman is perceived as this Sigma male. So an alpha male, because he's a top of society, he's a chub, you know? But uh, he's also perceived, of course, as a Sigma male, uh, I mean, because he's detached from it. I mean, also the most naive viewer of the movie, uh, spectator of the movie, catches this component. Bateman is detached. Even though he's a yuppie, he's a weird type of yuppie. Then, of course, we try to say you know, how much is weird and in what is weird, but this is essentially the point. And, okay, now there is a fascination about the Sigma Maze. Uh, we are all looking for the... Barbie movie next summer with Ken, who will probably be the last Sigma male of the of uh, yeah of the cinema world in general. We will see what happens. Of course, uh, anyway, just to make it clear, this fascination for Bateman steps out from the movie, not from the book, because if you read the book, it is very difficult, even if you are extremely naive, to have some sympathy for Bateman. I mean, you cannot have a sympathy for a rapist, for a sexual offender, for a systematic serial killer and all sorts of that. In, in the movie, it is more nuanced. Uh, also, again, as I was saying at the beginning, the movie is not gorish, it's not splatter. It's uh, a dark comedy, in a sense. So you can watch it ironically if you want. Talk about two other kind of things that interested me from what you mentioned, which the first is sort of how... In, in, in addition, as you mentioned, with refugees and with immigrants, how he sort of treats immigrants or, or people who live in New York City who aren't originally from America. So he, he's always talking about the restaurants and sort of the ethnicity of the restaurant that he's attending. Like he mentions he attends, you know, a sushi restaurant or a Creole restaurant. or So he's sort of obsessed with this kind of fetishism of ethnicities and the different... Yeah, the San Salvador Bistro... Mm-hmm. In the book, it is uh, mentioned uh, several times. Yeah. And so he, he definitely appreciates that kind of enjoying eating food from dif- different ethnicities as kind of like a, a fetishism sort of thing um, and getting to sample, you know, different cultural cuisines as very much uh, someone with access to resources. But then his other interactions, like I wanted to 
read what I was referencing before with the taxi drivers because the quote stands out where he says, um, he says, I'm positive that any, any cab drivers I've killed lately were not American. So he's very, he's, you know, he's not denying the fact that he, he murders taxi drivers, but what he is asserting is that he's sure that they weren't Americans. They're just some American other journalist. Yeah. So they're just some other, you know, he, he's unsure they could be whatever ethnicity, but he, he's completely, as you mentioned, totally racist and xenophobic. But in addition, there's this very interesting quote, the section where he's talking to, I'm unsure exactly who he's talking to, but someone is saying to him about visiting the Caribbean, so doing tourism. Yeah, saying, it's a colleague of, I think it's called Hamilton, if I remember okay. correctly. Yeah. And he's saying this, this interesting section where he says, visitors to the Caribbean don't need a passport, just proof of US citizenship. And even better, Taylor, is that language is no barrier. English is spoken everywhere, even on those islands where the local language is French or Spanish. Most of the islands are former British, dot, dot, dot. And then the internal monologue is Bateman saying, or he even says it out loud in the book, and similar in the way to the movie where sometimes he'll say something out loud to somebody and, and they don't hear him or he, or there's no register of what he said. Like when he says to the bartender, I do, you know, murders and executions, or I like to kill people and she, she doesn't even hear what he says. Yeah, yeah you react. never understand if he says. So what do you do? I'm into uh, well, murders and executions mostly. Do you like it? Well, it depends. Why? Well, most guys I know who work in mergers and acquisitions really don't like it. That stuff, and hmm. he's not heard, or if he pretends to say that, but it is just in his mind. Yeah. There is only a part of the book in which this is clear because he mentions like a serial killer or something like that. And his colleagues are quite, uh, you know, uh, you shocked by this and say, ah, but yeah. you like that kind of stuff. We know that you read all the biographies of Ted Bundy and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 You never yeah. understand if, he's under, if uh, he says this and if he says this, if the others are able to capture it. But right. are and they are so superficial that if they are frightened by it, they simply go on and pretend not to have heard it. Yeah, this is something that uh, I mean we can uh, we can never tell in a sense. Also, because we know from the beginning, as I was saying, that Bateman suffers from hallucinations. Right. So it becomes difficult to distinguish between the reality and what he perceives as reality. He's an he's he's an unreliable point of view. Clear. Right. Exactly. But, but just in this quote, it's even, it's fascinating because so this person is talking about tourism and Bateman going to the Caribbean and traveling around. And so on the one hand, it, it's the very typical American sort of way, way of American tourism where you just go wherever you want, you get access because you have a US passport, you can speak English and they, now Americans can go anywhere and you expect people will speak English to you. But meanwhile, Bateman says to him, uh, in, as he's droning on about the Caribbean, my life is a living hell, I mentioned off the cuff while casually moving leaks around on my plate, which by the way is a porcelain triangle. And there are many more people I uh, want to, want to, well, I guess murder, I say this, emphasizing the last word, staring straight into Armstrong's face. So I guess the character is Armstrong that he's, that he's talking to. Okay, yeah, probably it's Armstrong, not Hamilton, yes. And then in response, the response is, 
Service has improved to the islands as both American Airlines and Eastern Airlines have created hubs in San Juan. There are additional connections, blah, blah, blah. I take a series of scheduled island hopping flights. The person has literally no reaction to what he's just said. He just continues to talk about tourism and traveling to different islands yeah. and having a nice vacation. And he's most interested in sort of what is the easiest way for us to be as Americans to access this stuff, to get exactly what we want. And the last thing that fascinates me with that is Bateman's sort of, and, and all of the characters, as we've been mentioning throughout their kind of obsession with commodities, getting, you know, very nice products from, from extraction from the global South, for lack of a better term, they end up with all these minerals and oils and all of Bateman's sort of, you know, creams and, and stuff that he uses on his skin. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer, then an anti-aging eye balm followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. And he's able to have all of these very fancy products, but he's obsessed with brand names and he's obsessed with sort of, you know, the, the luxury items that you should have in your life as an American that are all directly related to this kind of engagement with the rest of the world that necessitates extraction and oppression and domination and this even this kind of tourism ends up being like American Airlines takes over makes sure that Americans can go they spend dollars on the island they ensure that you know the U.S. passport is privileged and English is the language and for Bateman it's all just kind of like okay more more luxury that I can have meanwhile his internal monologue is just I, I would like to kill the person that I'm talking to so it's this incredible sort of dissonance between the luxury life that he lives but also what i think is very interesting from it is the kind of violence that is underneath the surface of that because you have someone describing something very bland like and and a lot of these as you mentioned a lot of these monologues tend to be sort of bland and hard to read it's just someone rambling about the different islands and and whatever but the sort of violence underneath the surface of something like for example american tourism in puerto rico as they're talking about san juan is part of American colonization of the island there. But that part is very much in the, the subconscious of what they're discussing. But Bateman kind of reveals the violence that, that comes underneath it with his internal monologue of, I'm all I'm thinking about is murder. Who can I murder next? No, no, yeah. I mean, I totally agree. Bateman, again, on this side, he's completely detached. And he only thinks of that thing, which anyway, it's not able to give him pleasure, as I was saying before, no? Um, Bateman has some spark of emotion sometimes. There is a part of the book in which uh, um, he murders, I don't remember if it was uh, uh, one of his ex-fiancés, or let's say a girl, and at a certain point, uh, wait, I, have the, I should have the point here of the book. Well, while he's uh, murdering this uh, poor lady, the only thing that uh, he is able to say, and he's, he actually shouts it. So again, he may even say that he has some form of, uh, let's say, um, emotion on this side. Uh, yeah, he is only able to say, oh, I just want to be loved. This is the phrase, more or less. Again, which tells you anyway something about the character. So. The idea is that anyway, Bateman has something repressed in itself. Perhaps there are emotions somewhere, but they are never really relevant, let's say. 
even the fact that he commits murder is not even an emotion, even though it should be a bad one, of course, because this is just an automatism for him. Another thing that I want to point out about the, uh, the, the, the dialogue is that, okay, you pointed out that tourism essentially comes after colonization. No? But also the type of tourism that they are carrying out, which is a, an extremely commodified tourism, because I mean, I can imagine this uh, Armstrong going to the island, um, having a room in a luxury hotel, which inside is equivalent to any other luxury hotel you can find in the world, doing then during the day any kind of activity that you can do in any kind of, let's say, island around the world. I mean, you are not even focalizing on, let's say, the cultural dimension of the Hawaii, if not even only in a very superficial way. And this was something very common also from a cultural point of view during the late 80s and the first 90s, because when there was the spread of world and the new age music, some artists, there were some very famous cases of artists uh, stealing essentially um, records of ethnomusicologists that went to Africa, Southeast Asia, and then recorded the natives uh, for example, there was a case about uh, the recording of uh, an old woman um, singing a, a lullaby. Now, of course, uh, this woman was never credited. The song that was made up on this recording, basically bass and some instruments were added, and then the vocals of the old woman were preserved. Well, the fact that the woman was not quoted at all, no permission was asked to her, basically because this person was not recognized with having an identity, in a sense. No, it, also a legal identity, no, because it comes, uh, I mean, it's a native, no, it comes from, a, she lives in a tribe, so uh, she comes from, uh, again, a tribe in a state, uh, in a primordial state that as Westerners, we don't even care about. So, okay, we make the music. The worst thing that can happen is that the musicologist sues us because we used his recording, not her recording, but his recording inappropriately. I mean, this is, again, cultural appropriation on one side, but also homogenization on this side because as a disease, you are exporting something peculiar of a given country, of a given culture in the rest of the world, and you assume that the rest of the world has to homogenize to that type of culture. I mean, the standard example of this is McDonald's. There are countries like mine, like Italy, in which the tradition about gastronomy in general does not fit at all with what McDonald's represents. I mean, in Italy, if you want fast food, you have other alternatives, um, historically. Anyway, McDonald's was imported anyways, as it was, uh, as we know, in the Eastern Europe and in Russia, when then the, the Soviet, when the wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed. These are just noumena, uh, um, if we want. These are just... Uh, um, Yes, simulacra representations of things that we import all over the world. I mean, it's nice if you watched, for example, about McDonald's, the founder, the movie. 
well, the golden arcs, there is a lot of emphasis on the fact that these golden arcs represent, uh, uh, are a symbol, are like the cross uh, for, a, for the church, for the Catholic church, for the Christian church. It's like the Christian cross for the Christian church, more or less. By exporting them, which is just a, a structure because it's something, it's a symbol or something that you, you use when building the structure of the restaurant, you are already importing something that goes much beyond the simple fact that we have these golden arcs making an M that stands for McDonald's. And again, Bateman is completely coherent with this. I mean, probably in the view of Bateman, every part of the world should homogenize with the US, uh, with, uh, with New York, with the American way of living because it is the best one and the only one for Bateman. Of course, Ellis is extremely critical of this because he says, look, the American way of life generates American psychos. I think that Ellis was able to capture only in the 80s, however, then I will say more later, that there was something, and I think that he points out quite explicitly what this something is, so Reaganism, etc., individualism, etc., that is uh, completely making the society collapsing. Okay. And also Bateman, as I was saying before, captures some elements of disruption. Now, Ellis uh, nowadays, uh, I mean, he, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even define him as a political writer in a sense, also because I mean, uh, for example, in Italy, when you talk about a political writer, you mean someone that uh, during, uh, let's say, the late, uh, 20th century had relations, uh, intellectual relations with the party. For example, with the so-called organic intellectuals, we, we used to call them. Clearly in the US, uh, you don't have such a thing because uh, parties are organized in a completely different way, etc. But I wouldn't even say that Ellis is a political writer in a sense. Okay, he perceived that uh, what he was seeing at the time was problematic. He was sufficiently smart to analyze it and to produce at least a couple of books about it because uh, at the end of the day, uh, American Psycho is his third book. The first one is less than zero. The second one, The Rules of Attraction. These three books, uh, uh, well, I wouldn't say are really a trilogy, sort of, because uh, the characters of each book are uh, uh, related uh, in some way to characters in other books. So the books are connected anyway in some vague way. It is a sort of trilogy about American society because it is built uh, as a sort of Bildungsroman, if you think about it. Because uh, in less than zero, you have the character who is a first year student at university. So very young, 18, 19, no more than that. In the rules of attraction, the characters are slightly older, but still at university. In American Psycho, you have uh, Bateman, who is again 27. So he probably obtained a degree two or three years before the events portrayed in the book. It's a sort of composition of a character. Now, of course, I'm not saying that the main character is less than zero, is the same as the character in the, in the Rules of Attraction in American Psycho. I'm simply saying that you see an evolution of society in a sense moving from NTV to peak uh, financial Reaganism, you see a lot going on in between. In particular, I think what uh, Ellis was, was um, pointing out is that uh, 
you see that youth is problematic. I mean, I'm not for generational conflicts, but anyway, I think that this was Ellie's intuition. On one side, you have youngsters that are completely deranged. They don't do anything. They spend their entire day. I mean, not in the sense they do not work, in the sense that they actively act in order not to think. Going from MTV to, let's say, cool drugs like cocaine, this is essentially what they do. Or if they think, let's say, and they put their mind at work, then they end up like Nathan, that wants to fit in, that is, let's say, determined in his life, more or less, even though he's already at the top. Also, the fact that Bigman belongs at the top does not mean that he's part of the top inside the top, because as we know, all his colleagues tell, uh, say that he is a spineless man with no type of bravery. Uh, essentially a man with no relevant personality, differently from his colleagues we are, who are perceived as extremely, as extremely cool. Now, going back to the reasoning I was carrying out, I, I wouldn't say that Ellis is a political writer, also because, I mean, some of his declarations in recent years basically converge to what he was sort of fighting in the late 80s, in the first 90s, so the let's say, the mainstream liberalism, uh, what we may say is liberalism with a human face, you know? to paraphrase the socialism with human face. So basically, what is embodied by the Democratic Party? I mean, I think that Ellis supported Obama recently, so he probably votes Democrat. I mean, he belongs to that type of intellectuals who are nowadays a sort of mainstream, and okay, so he's liberal, he stands for civil rights, as we all do, okay, but uh, he remains uh, overall uh, quite uh, naive nowadays. I mean, nowadays, I think that he, he basically lost the view. So it's also difficult to you know, set your own view. If you don't have someone that helps you, someone that can be a friend or, um, or a comrade or a party or whatever, you can easily, let's say, lose... Uh, the arrow, let's say, lose the right direction, which is probably what happened to Ellis, I think. But I mean, that's okay. It happens. There is nothing against it. There is nothing about it. So, well, two things. One would be I, this one quote that I want to read and finish off, and then I want to ask you for something as well. But he has a quote that I that I think can sort of summarize the character of Bateman in in some capacity, where he says. Uh, I make no comment, lost in my own private maze, thinking about other things, war and stock offerings, ESOPs, LBOs, IPOs, finances, refinances, debentures, converts, proxy statements, 8Ks, 10Qs, zero coupons, PIKs, JNPs, the IMF, hot executive gadgets, billionaires, Ken, Kenkichi Nakajima, infinity, infinity with a capital I, how fast the luxury car should go, bailouts, junk bonds, whether to cancel my subscription to The Economist. As, uh, as Lenin famously said about The Economist, it's the, uh, the instrument of the English uh, aristocracy or the English ruling class. But it's fascinating, this quote, where he lists all of the things that he, that he really thinks about internally. And they're all sort of nonsensical, meaningless acronyms or you know, things like executive gadgets. And, and These are all terms taken from the financial world and it's uh, one of the few points in the book in which let's say Bateman speaks about his work in a sense 
uh, again, he mentions all these very technical terms. Uh, again, uh, yes, proxy statements, uh, thank yous, uh, IPOs, okay, LBOs, all this kind of stuff. He does not mention CDOs, uh, but probably they were not called like this back in the 90s, or they were not known probably by Ellis anyway. So, I mean, yes, this is essentially what Bateman is. And also here notes that he just a list of uh, noise, essentially. Um, expressions flowing around. Now it's like, uh, I don't know if you watched the episode of The, of the Simpsons, an Halloween episode in which uh, um, Homer is able to go beyond and he enters into the, that weird dimension, which is portrayed as a three, as a three dimension, um, as a, but in three dimensions. And there are like mathematical formulas flowing around in this space. Okay, this is exactly the same in Batesman mind. And he, at a certain point, I remember a dialogue in which he thinks about something or a monologue, and he says, Oh, uh, he says something like, um, I wonder what's wrong in IBM and why it is failing. Because if you go, you see that IBM sometimes loses money quite considerably, but it's such a big firm and it never fails I mean, it's still there so yeah i mean you see this is the essence of bateman he has a lot of thoughts in his head all superficial and that all arise uh, randomically randomly essentially and there is no sense um, let's say in this uh, um, in, his in his list again it's a stream of consciousness in the sense that there is a clear lack of let's say rationality or exactly of consciousness in ordering this stuff. Whatever that means, uh, it's, uh, I mean, we cannot say this, we can only of course interpret what this type of list really mean in the background. So the fact that he is a confused human being essentially. I think it also certainly represents the kind of domination of his brain of finance capital and the kind of as you mentioned, all these overly complicated financial terms show that he is really just an instrument of the market himself at a certain point. But even the interesting references to his reading of The Economist, so just as you mentioned, with the information you take in about all these meaningless statistics about the world and the business world in particular, you know, he's thinking about the IMF, so yet another sort of subliminal reference to imperialism. But, but just to finish it off, and because I think we've kind of thoroughly discussed, there's so much in the book to talk about, but it, the one last thing I'm curious is if you can talk a little bit in the conclusion about Bateman's interaction with Bono, because that's a scene that I think is very reflective of the, of the kind of spirit of American Psycho, and especially that line that he says at the end of the interaction. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I just give some context. Bateman does not like live music. Also, again, this is a, another characteristic uh, that helps you understand that, well, he's not uh, extremely, let's say, well-trained in music, because, I mean, if you like music, you should also like live music, particularly if it is from bands that you like. Anyway, he's forced to attend a U2 concert in New Jersey, I think. Um, so, he goes there with his colleagues. And of course, the first thing that he starts to do with the people seated close to him is to discuss the clothes 
of and uh, the, the apparel, also the physique of uh, the various uh, artists uh, that are playing, so of the, of the U2 band. First of all, they, they continuously, of course, since they, he does not like U2, of course, he, com he generally mistakes members of the band. So the singer is Bono, uh, the, the guitarist is called The Edge, but I think that sometimes he's misspelled like The Ledge or something else. So, because, okay, they do not know the band, essentially. And then, uh, of course, they discuss the physique of Bono, which clearly does not go to the gym. And also, they, uh, at a certain point, they also focalize on what, le on what Edge, The Edge, is wearing. And someone says, oh, it's from Armani. And no, it's definitely not from Armani. It looks very cheap and all that kind of stuff, which is, okay, by the way, irrelevant. And then at a certain point, Bateman has, again, a sort of hallucination. Let's say it's an episode of, you may even say epiphany to some extent, because he perceives that Bono is looking at him. Bono is the singer of U2, of course, for the few of the listeners who do not know this. Um, and he feels a sort of psychological contact with Bono. And at a certain time, the concert, let's say the environment in, um, close to Bateman vanishes, only Bono is left. And uh, then he hears Bono saying something like, I am, I, um, I am the devil and uh, you are identical to me or something like that. Or it's the opposite. You are the devil and I am identical to you. And I don't remember exactly the quote. But anyway, yes, it's uh, this sort of epiphany because then uh, Bateman is left uh, after this episode with the fact that uh, anyway, he has been able to have some uh, psychological contact with Bono. So some uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, some fil rouge, some connection with him. And now he's sort of left, uh, you know, quite astounded by this, quite, uh, you know, confused by this. Of course, now the episode, uh, of course, I think it's, uh, I mean, uh, it's comical, okay, the episode, because it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any kind of sense. You can try to read it in multiple ways. The first thing of which anyway I'm not really aware of is what was the perception of U2 at the end of the 90s. Because, okay, nowadays we know that U2 are perceived as the typical liberal band in a sense, you know, because uh, Bono is an activist, uh, he's friends with, uh, very, he's very in touch, and I think we can say he's friends with Obama, so with the, let's say, the democratic establishment, he's a supporter, he stands for civil rights and other fights for human rights around the world. The problem is that at the same time, we discover that he is rich. He probably made money also by eluding taxes and all of that kind of stuff. So he's an ambiguous character. Now, I don't know what was, again, the perception that the audience had about you too in the late 90s. But again, if one reads this episode now, a posteriori, so a fortiori, you may laugh a little bit about it. You may read it again as a critique of this type of mainstream superficial liberalism. No, Bono, that is, uh, uh, again, the most liberal artist probably you can ever imagine, but deep down he's the devil and uh, he's truly the devil because he knows that Bateman is like him. So 
anyway, I don't know any, any I, I say again, what was the perception of you two at the time? I simply know that since 1984, with the unforgettable fire that is a sort of uh, american elegy album because it's uh, when they started to fell in love with america let's say with the us well, i mean the us in particular because they started to tour in the us uh, they wrote for example in the name of love pride in the name of love is uh, written for martin luther king one man in the name of love one man came and come and go um, yeah, one man took the, other, the overthrow in the name of love. I mean, this is a, a sort of hymn, we may say, written on the figure of Martin Luther King. So again, the album in its essence is again an American elegy because uh, also because at the time during the 80s, uh, essentially coming from Europe because they were coming from Ireland, there was this love for, uh, you know, the US, you know? the land of opportunity, something radically different from what we were used to in Europe and all this kind of stuff. And clearly you too and Bono clearly fell inside this uh, propaganda trick, call it as you wish, because I think that Bono nowadays also lives in the US probably, does not live anymore in Ireland. And so, yes, I mean, the, the, the episode, it's, uh, it's very funny. Also because, I mean, it should be asked to Ellis what he really intended when he write it. I mean, and the answer may even be nothing, simply uh, something very, you know, easy and funny to put somewhere in the book. Yeah, I think this is a good place to stop. And I also think with that, it's definitely good to say that I, a lot of what happens in American Psycho, as you mentioned, means absolutely nothing at all. And it's quite reflective of the kind of nature of the, of the subject material, which really is quite absurd and has no meaning and is very related to meaningless acts of violence and and uh, and hatred. And really that's kind of all you can say about them. But thank you for, for joining and discussing this more. I know this is sort of your your uh, subject of, of uh, expertise on this text, um, but I think anybody who hasn't read the book or seen the movie should and definitely watching it with a political lens because I think certainly there is interpretation to be made and, and quite a significant one from the political aspects of it that can say a lot about the state of as you said American life producing American psycho is quite a good way of summarizing it so yeah thanks so much and take care see you bye 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 take care nice Jesus that is really super. How do nitwit like you get so tasteful? I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait, you ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering, pale nimbus, white. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Lovewood coloring. A tasteful thickness of it. Oh my god. It even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick? You're sweating. <laughs>